Welcome to another episode of We Are Carbon. I'm Helen Fisher and I'm joined by Nicola Peel for a discussion that takes us on a journey to the rainforests of the Amazon. Wherever we are around the world, there's a good chance that we're very detached from the mind-blowing reality of just how much established rainforest is being cut down every second of every day. We seem to scratch our heads about what tech we can create and use to solve our emissions problems. And yet an opportunity of this vast scale is, for the most part, overlooked. Nicola has spent 20 years working with Indigenous peoples, initiating social and environmental projects. She's experienced the changes in the Amazon, the pollution, the loss of fish in the river, and she sees firsthand the very urgent issue of deforestation as people are selling off their forest for just a tiny bit of shrapnel. Nicola brings us a picture of why this is happening and helps us to consider in what ways this may be entangled within our own lives. We discuss the immeasurable value of biodiversity, new farming approaches that are saving chocolate, among many other benefits, and how carbon offsetting could start connecting the dots and expanding the much-needed solutions. You can keep on top of all of the updates from We Are Carbon by subscribing at the website or finding us on Instagram at wearecarbon.earth. Right, let's get stuck in. Good morning, Nicola. Thank you so much for joining me today. An absolute pleasure to have you here. Before we get stuck in with the questioning, I wondered if you could just spend a few minutes briefly introducing yourself and your work. Yeah. Hi, everybody. Um, yeah, my name's Nicola Peel. I'm a solutionist. Once upon a time, I was called an environmentalist, but my focus is really on the solutions and what we can do rather than what we can't do. So I've spent 20 years working in the Ecuadorian Amazon, initiating and coordinating a number of environmental and social projects. And when I'm in the UK, I'm asked as a speaker to speak about my work in the Amazon and also sit on varying panels discussing nature and what we can actually do. Fantastic. Thank you. So what I'd like to discuss really is about climate change um, and essentially the theme of carbon emissions and relooking really at the topic of carbon because there's an awful lot that goes on at the moment regarding high-tech solutions, where we're looking at drawing carbon down, bringing it from the atmosphere and trapping it down here on Earth. And what your work is looking at is something, in fact, quite a lot more simple than that and saying, um, or simple from a technological point of view, I should sort of probably make that clear. So, so you're saying that before we look um, towards other solutions, we should at least be considering protecting what's already working well. In other words, protecting the forests. And in this solution, it's not just about carbon at this point. It's not just about looking at emissions or reducing emissions. It's also considering the impact of protecting biodiversity. And I'd love if you could explain, firstly, the significance of the protection itself but then also this relationship and why it's important to protect the biodiversity alongside. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, they still say science, a ballpark figure that you know, 80,000 acres are being cut down every day, which, you know, it's hard to kind of get our mind around that, that figure, 80,000 acres per day. 
So on one hand, we have this concerted effort for you know planting trillions and trillions of trees. And so there's a big campaign going on all around the world to do tree planting. And so whilst we plant a thousand trees over here, we then cut down a thousand trees over there. So if we're to look in order of priorities as to right now the state of the planet, and we have these amazing carbon sucking machines called trees, but however, we are losing them at such an unprecedented rate. So for me, I think the priority really is, well, let's just save what we've got and expand from there. Because these little saplings that were planted, and of course we need to plant trees everywhere, but we do need to kind of like weigh up the impact of cutting down these large trees in established primary forests in these key biodiversity areas. And as you said, it's not just about the carbon. But at the moment, we can't actually put a price on biodiversity. It's just the only metrics we have at the moment is the price on carbon. So we can calculate the standing carbon in the trees and the biomass in the soil. But what about what differentiates a tree plantation to an intact primary forest? How do we value that more? So that's really what my interest is. And how do we pay the people that actually live in these forests? So I've worked for 20 years in the Ecuadorian Amazon, and I've heard the same story from many small farmers and indigenous communities. And they say the same thing. We don't want to have to cut the forest down, but we need food, we need medicine, we want to send our children to school. And that's why they are driven to sell the wood, to clear the land, either sell it to big agribusiness or rent it to cattle. So at the moment, there doesn't seem to be many projects which are actually focused on funding the people that live in these key biodiversity areas. So if we're to prioritize on the planet, which areas do we save first? We map those and reward the people that live there to keep the forest standing. So the initiative that I you know, came up with was pay to breathe. We pay for our food and we pay for our water, but we don't pay for the air that we breathe. We just take that for granted. But where does it come from? Who provides it? It comes from the oceans and it comes from the forests. So you know, we all benefit from this, apart from the people that live in these intact rainforests. So looking at that in order of priority, we have to find a way to fund the people so that they can be the guardians, they can be the seed savers, they can create the tree nurseries of the future and expand areas of already intact rainforests. Yeah. So this is actually, you've mentioned some figure at the start there that was actually quite mind blowing, how much of this is being cut down every single day. It's it's very, very difficult for us to get our heads around. And I think we're quite detached from it, um, particularly the reasoning behind all of this. Why is this happening? And when it isn't happening in our local area, it's very easy to dismiss and to dismiss the importance of supporting projects like what you're you're describing here where we're protecting because despite the fact that it might be the other side of the world to us, 
it's impacting all of us on our everyday basis and perhaps it's going to become more so and more important. The people that are cutting the trees down, they're essentially, it's their lifeline and they're feeling that they've got no alternative option. So you're working in some ways to provide them with options that are going to support the maintenance of the forest, but also support their livelihood. So could you talk a little about what those solutions look like? Yes, uh, it has been tried by the Ecuadorian government, an initiative called Socio Bosque, but they're paid $35 per hectare per year. So, you know, $35 for a year isn't really going to make it worthwhile for you to not cut the forests down. So, you know, how do we actually value what, what they have and find a fair price? How do we work directly with the people and the, com the communities? Because most initiatives go through the government. And then what the people get left with, in their own words, are crumbs. They get a tiny amount given to them, but it's not enough to sustain life. You know, sadly, due to contamination and other reasons in the Amazon, that the rivers don't flow with fish like they used to. You know, many indigenous communities buy tinned tuna and canned fish because there's no fish in the river. They are driven to have to buy food. And so, and this desire to want to send their children to school, well, why shouldn't they? But the cost to send the child out of the forest into a city has all these expenses. So there needs to be a way that they can be supported. And many communities have also said, it's not just about the money, it's projects. If we could support them financially, economically to have the projects so they can help themselves. It's another way that we can value the forest. And, you know, when we look at how do we actually put that value, how do we work out what's a fair price? And there's an interesting way of looking at it anthropocentrically, that the more biodiverse a forest, the more different strains of fungi and bacteria that live there, the more potential for the future of medicine. Most of our medicine right now, most antibiotics come from fungi and bacteria. So obviously a forest that has most diversity has most potential for the future of our medicine. So often what has happened is that we've gone into these places, we've taken their traditional medicine and they have not received any economic benefit. You know, science and large pharmaceutical industries have made lots of money on ingredients from the forest, but the people themselves don't benefit. So we really have to turn this around. They are, the indigenous peoples are the best guardians of the forest, but they are the people that are living in most abject poverty. So, you know, it's a really urgent need for us to find a way to directly support the people so that say, they can, you know, look after that which we all depend on. Yeah. It it's quite an interesting picture that you're painting because there's so such a size, such a scale of deforestation that's happening. And essentially what you're saying is a significant amount of it is in the hands of people that would, that are 
that they're not benefiting from this. This isn't all. I mean, I'm imagining that some of it is about large scale profit and that there are situations where companies on large scale are responsible. But you're also saying that there is, I suppose, a additional effect of many different communities, many indigenous people on a smaller scale combining together. They don't want to destroy the forest. They're actually, they're doing it as a last resort. So it's, I, that, that isn't um, something that I had come across before. And it's very important. You've kind of placed yourself within these environments and you can bring that information to us because uh, yeah, when I think of the deforestation, I just think of big corporations and sort of this kind of greed and profitization. Um, and actually, what you're bringing to us is uh, an alternative solution to protect at least a large scale of it by us protecting the communities that depend upon the lands. And yeah. And, and I think it's uh, it is really important to acknowledge that, that of course, a lot of it is large scale agribusiness. But also, you know, quite a lot is either taken off of the people or bought off of the people, sold for so cheap. There's an area um, in the Choco Cloud Forest in Ecuador, which is more biodiverse than the Amazon itself. And right now you could buy for $500 a hectare the most primary, you know, intact ecosystem. And so the price of it, $500 a hectare is absolutely nothing. So of course, the, the value of it, that they will buy it up and they'll cut it down and it will be turned into cattle. And so this just shows, you know, the, the level of poverty as well and the need to clear it for such little money because they don't understand the value. And, and I've been really kind of trying to push this and say, just hold on to your forest, just hold on for another couple of years. I promise that one day you will get paid for this amazing machine, this, you know, this ultimate way uh, of carbon sequestration. But, um, but sadly, the people are like, well, show us the money because we have to keep cutting it down until we actually see, you know, that there really are projects that people are really benefiting. And what one of the problems is, is that the forest gets turned into islands where you know one community or some farmers live here and they'll cut around a piece of forest and so islands sadly start to lose a lot of life you know some of the more kind of keystone species need large areas and when the forest starts to be cut up into all these little islands you know the level of biodiversity starts to drop so you know it's imperative that we keep it all joined up in large intact areas so really it's about mapping you know the areas we want to save and ensure that a lot of these are already reserves even though unfortunately still some reserves um you know get uh, cut down as well but mainly protected areas are protected however there's many mining concessions now which threaten that as well so even if we think of an area as being a national park or a protected forest, sadly, that doesn't mean to say that it actually is. But by identifying those places and expanding them to ensure that those are the first places to be protected, to me, seems the priority. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, 
the biodiversity, I think that that is so important that what you've, you know, you're saying with the medicine, you can't just plant up new land, new trees, let those grow and say, well, we're, we're going to have all of the discoveries for medicine in there. It, it, people need to recognize that this is alive. It's like an ecosystem unto itself that's developed over probably millennia. And you don't just recreate that by planting trees. No, and many, many species have still not even been given a name. They've not been identified. There's many endemic species that only live in one particular area. So the information when we learn from nature, not when we just learn about nature, but when we learn from it, actually, what is it doing? How does it do it? The strategies and the functions that are used by these species that still haven't been identified. So we're losing vast amounts of information. These huge libraries of knowledge are being lost before we've really even understood them. Yeah. And when you think of the price, $500 a hectare, that just screams desperation. To think that for whatever reason, that value in that moment is worth more than keeping hold of that land and what potential food that land could provide. And it, 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 it takes away any thoughts of long-term um, resilience and, and just saying here now in this moment, I desperately need this money. So that's, that's telling us the picture and the mindset of uh, where the communities have found themselves. So what kind of solutions are being worked upon in order to offer instead um, a means to say, well, like you said, we, we want to help you to see that this land is worth more than this for you. Are there other situations going on that are helping people do that? Yes, there are some projects which are focused on, you know, food from the forest and, you know, supporting the people to actually harvest, you know, native indigenous foods, which can be used for cosmetics, can be used for medicine, for food. But it's not enough. It, it's a great niche market and it's a great thing to do is to support the peoples, to keep the forest standing by harvesting, you know, the food that's in there. But realistically, it's not really enough for them to survive on. And so with today's market being really focused on carbon offsetting, it seems like this is an ideal opportunity right now to focus the carbon market where it is really, really needed. And so that it's just, yeah, I can't keep reiterating the priority in keeping the carbon standing that is already there. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I suppose finding the finance being driven into that direction because there is finance being driven into carbon markets. This is a huge, um, well supported industry that is only going to keep growing. In your experience, is it finding its way to the right places? Well, it's a lot easier to measure tree planting. You can quantify planting trees, you know, how much land has been, you know, planted. And it seems to be much more quantifiable than actually putting the carbon into the forests. And then the arguments are, well, how can we prove that they don't just take the money and then cut the forest down? Well, we have amazing satellite technology, which obviously can, down to the last tree, um, verify that the forest is still standing. 
So we don't really have to worry about that. All we need is the GPS coordinates of a piece of land. We verify that that forest is there and then they get paid on whatever the carbon price is for that forest. So it's there, but how do we move the money is one of the big questions. And you know, a lot of these people you know, live in quite, quite remote areas. So you know, there's, there's some organizations talking about doing it through cryptocurrency. Well, how much will that actually help the people on the land? So you know, it's got to be a real way of moving the money to the people. And they always say to me, yes, but we just don't want it to go through the government because the government will take so much. So how do we find a way to pay the people directly? And the, the common way of conservation has been to kind of buy up the land, take it off of the people and create a reserve. And, and so that's what we're familiar with, with conservation is, you know, varying rainforest organizations will buy up land, create reserves and protect them, which, you know, has been great. But I also see that as slightly an old, you know, almost kind of patriarchal colonist style of, you know, white man's going to come in and save it. Well, how about if we actually paid them to save it and protect it? But I'm being told that that's too radical, that method. (laughs) The idea of equality and saying that we don't want to own, we don't want to control, we just want to balance things out. That's radical. So, so yes, I, I keep speaking about this wherever possible because I receive many emails and WhatsApps and messages from people in the Amazon saying, hey, have you found a way to get any money yet? And, and every time I hear of any organization or foundation that say that they are protecting forests, well, then I kind of write to them and say, well, hey, what about the Ecuadorian Amazon or the Choco Cloud Forest? And so far, I haven't found anyone that's actually moving money to the people. Um, I think that the interests of the whole globe are not just about climate change, but about food resilience too. And I think there's a detachment there. People go to the shop and they buy their chocolate and they buy their coffee and they get their medicines. Uh, Do you see that there is, um, are we having a negative impact with all of our needs when, when we're doing this or are we I suppose it's kind of a question of if we have a benefit that's coming from them directly in our day-to-day life, how can we ensure that we're supporting rather than adding to the problem in our purchasing and our habits? Yeah, which is a really good point. And, And things like coffee and chocolate are a great example because, you know, they come from the forest, um, but now they're monocultures. So land is cleared to put in that coffee and chocolate and cacao. So yes, there's an impact. You know, coffee, if we can find shade grown coffee, that means that there is actually forest that is left there. It isn't just a monoculture of coffee. They are actually growing trees to provide to support other wildlife. So, you know, when we're looking at, you know, fair trade, organic, shade grown, of course. It is better than the large scale corporate monoculture crops where people can still be being paid very, very little. And and sadly, you know, a lot of agrochemicals can be used as well. So there isn't the kind of environmental regulations like in other countries. 
So um, yeah, that, that's also a concern. Before we continue with Nicola, I have no doubt that gaining transparency on the way that the world works can help us to see solutions. It really can be an eye-opening starting point when we take a look at the bigger picture. It shows us that we've got more power than we probably realise. Just getting clued up and making a few changes to the products that we buy, how we approach our gardening or the charities that we choose to support, for example, really can have a big impact. And beyond our personal lives, I hope that these discussions are stimulating a few extra thoughts to how you approach your business or the topics that you're eager to learn more about. We've quite a few episodes available now, so do have a browse through if there's any that you've missed. And if you're enjoying them, it really would be a great help to me if you share them with anyone you think might like to have a listen to, or just send me your feedback and questions. Find all of the info, subscribe and get in touch through the website wearecarbon.earth. And in this next half of the conversation, we move our focus to new approaches that are being implemented on farmland and bringing a vast array of benefits for the people, the crops and the planet. Nicola also explains how impactful carbon offsetting could become if we can find a way to direct it to these types of initiatives. So let's get back to the discussion. So you've been working on some farming practices also with the small farmers and the indigenous peoples that help to balance out this line between what we've got on, you know, this monoculture, this very destructive way of working and the the forest, which in itself may not be providing the produce or the amount of output that, that the farmers are looking for. So you're, you're kind of finding some methods that are balancing things out um, with techniques such as alley cropping where there's trees involved within the crops and the production itself. Could you talk about that and help us to understand how that works? Yes. So I've been working with an organisation called Rainforest Saver and their focus is on Inga alley cropping. So it's one particular kind of tree called Inga edulis and they are grown in alleys. So the reason that we do this, our kind of mission is to prevent deforestation and to actually help alleviate poverty, as well as all the other benefits that go into it, which is also carbon sequestration, protecting watersheds, preventing soil erosion, preventing the use of agrochemicals. So there's lots of advantages to a system of agroforestry like that. And We've been going for six years now in this part of the Ecuadorian Amazon, working with agricultural colleges and universities. So it's the best place to go and teach the people that are working the land. And last year, I set up a number of comparative sites and have been having absolutely fantastic results showing that the yield can be increased, you know, up to kind of 15 times more in the sites where we grow between the alleys and we grow outside of the alleys. So we've been having amazing results in the yield in some places where they could grow absolutely nothing before. So what tends to happen in these tropical regions is slash and burn. The people will cut the forest, they will burn it, and then that creates nice fertile soil. But after a couple of years of like heavy tropical rain, which washes the topsoil into the rivers, you end up with the carbon which is stored in the soil is washed away. So the land then becomes infertile and very hard to grow on. So then they're driven to cut down more forest 
And so this pattern of slash and burn driving people to actually look for fertile ground. So the system of agroforestry is one that rebuilds the soil itself. So these alleys get pollarded, they get cut back, and all the mass gets left between the alley, which breaks down and makes this amazing compost, and, and then the, the crops get planted into this. So these trees are, are like a great kind of immune booster tree as well to anything that grows inside. So we've had you know, really good results with resistance to fungi and not just you know, faster flowering, much quicker growth, but just reports from the local people that the pineapples are the biggest and juiciest they've ever seen and that the yucca is the softest and the quickest to cook. So, you know, for the people, the citizen science of the people explaining the benefits, what they've seen has encouraged their neighbours to copy. And that's really what we want is to have a system that is able to be replicated and it has no cost. All that is needed is a machete and the seeds which grow locally. It's the education that's needed on how to grow the alleys. And then once they know and once they get started, well, off they go. But it's not a quick fix. It takes a couple of years until actually the land starts to see the benefits. But once there's been the, the pollarding, every year then the soil gets deeper and it becomes more fertile. So the yield keeps going up and up. So yeah, we've been having very exciting results with that. And there's some universities around the world that are wanting to help us um, to study what's going on and, and why we're having such great results. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's very encouraging. And it, it, it's, it's the sort of work that sounds like it's the only way forward in that it's visual and the results are very clear for the people in such a way that it's inspiring another farmer to, to ask, how do I do the same? It's o the only way that it's going to happen is through that education because it's counterintuitive. You're putting effort and land space into a growing a product that's not going to be the crop. So it really, it's like, well, what would I do that for? I'm sure they must be thinking, why don't I put my effort into growing something that's going to produce something saleable? But the trees themselves are doing a service to the land quite clearly probably on more ways than we can understand and that's going to be really exciting to see what uh, the universities if they get involved and start studying this more just how they can explain those relationships to us because there's so much more going on here than just building compost the the trees are doing a service for the crops themselves relationships are being built what kind of benefits you mentioned big juicy pineapples um, have you got any other stories of this kind where there's just benefit to the crop itself that's without um, explanation, really? The benefits. The benefits are, are numerous. I mean, they, it's a nitrogen fixing tree. It brings up phosphorus. It has a really good relationship with the kind of mycorrhizal mycelium underground. There's much more microorganisms in the soil. So there's so much going on in the soil. And one of our really exciting findings has been about resistance to fungal pod rot, which is a huge, huge issue for cacao farmers. 
Um, there's a fungus which has just been kind of wiping out cacao plantations, you know, which is quite serious, you know, if we think that we could lose chocolate um, in the Amazon, that would be, you know, just devastating. So the people are kind of forced to use, you know, fungicides, chemical fungicides, which are not good for their health, but also they can't afford them. So often they just give up and the cacao plantations have been abandoned. We had an accidental finding that the some of our farmers that were growing cacao and they put in an, an alley of inga next to the cacao started to notice that the trees, the cacao trees that were next to the alley weren't suffering from pod rot. So to start with, we thought, well, you know, is this a coincidence? We, we never went into alley cropping to actually grow cacao. It was about short cycle food crops that we wanted to really promote was uh, how we could you know, help people to grow more food. We weren't concentrating on cash crops. But actually, since this finding, it's been very exciting. And, um, and so some of our farmers now have started putting in alleys and growing the cacao between them. And we're seeing at least they're growing twice as fast, if not three times as fast. They're flowering twice as quickly. So, you know, this economically is a huge benefit for the people. They don't have to be paying for these fungicides. And also they're going to get a crop a lot faster. And another recent um, project which I've been kind of pushing along is the growing of hardwood and trees, wood trees between the alleys. Rather than them, you know, taking the wood from the forests, well, how about we grow the wood in plantations between the alleys? So um, that, that's getting some exciting results because obviously they're being grown in between the trees. So it's making them grow really straight as they go straight up to the light. And, and balsa wood is is really being used a lot at the moment it's used in wind turbines and it's being used in in kind of boats and all sorts of um all sorts of technology at the moment is using balsa wood because it's really flexible it can also be used in, instead of polystyrene it's very light it's very insulating so this balsa wood has suddenly got a huge demand and last year was the first time I witnessed a lot of it being taken from the forest. So for us to start growing balsa between our alleys is going to be, you know, a cash crop for the farmers in the future and prevents them having to go into the forest. Um, so it's, it's another great solution. Fantastic. And just to be clear, the alley cropping is a system that's being used and providing greater outputs but you aren't putting any fertilizer on that. There's no, no. chemical interaction, yeah. Um, obviously natural fertilizer, but no chemical inputs. So no. all, all that's needed is for the people to start with, with the machetes, um, is to clear the grass around the little seedlings when the alley's put in. So they must keep the grass down until the trees become established. And then when the trees are big, they shade out the grass. So that's the first solution is to get rid of this hardcore cattle grass because you can't grow anything in it. So the trees shade out the grass and then the mulch is left between. But the wood is taken away. And we have a project in Africa as well where they use the wood for cooking. So without this form of agroforestry, they would be going and taking wood from the forests. 
But with this system of, of agroforestry, the pollarded wood is their cooking wood. But in the Amazon, they don't cook on wood. So we're turning it into biochar, which has a huge other potentials as well in, in agriculture and in carbon sequestration, putting that back into the ground. Fantastic. So this is really nature doing its thing at the best, isn't it? It's sort of using the design and understanding how to support nature to then get that continually increasing abundance. What is the oldest um, alley cropping system that you've you've been working on? How long have you been doing them for? Well, in, in this area that we've been working in, in the Amazon has been six, seven years now. Um, but they've been working a lot longer. Um, a, a gentleman, Englishman, Mike Hans, he started it a long time ago in Honduras, where he did the research on these different Inga plants to discover which was the best. So, you know, really hats off to him for kind of developing the system and his work in Honduras. Uh, Rainforest Saver have also got a really successful project in Cameroon, which has been going, and they have like, over 500 farmers in Africa as well. And although it's not a native tree there, the tree was taken as a shade tree crop for coffee and cacao. So the tree had been introduced there um, as, as a shade crop. And so somebody actually contacted Rainforest Saver and, and said, look, we've identified this tree we want to see if your method of uh, alley cropping works. And so it was the people themselves contacting us that started the African project and, and say now they have over 500 farms that are working with this system. Fantastic. So that must be um, expanding to quite a big impact in terms of the livelihoods of the farmers there as well. Absolutely. Um, and the wood that's not being taken from the forest. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So how how does this keep expanding is the education in place that's needed to help new farmers take on these methods well that i mean what's needed is more finances to be able to scale up the project to train more trainers and uh, and that's what you know we really need is to be able to find what we're calling carbon partners people that are wanting to offset their carbon and looking for organizations like ours that are, are doing that. So we have currently Alara Whole Foods, who are the first cereal manufacturer in the world to have worked out their scope three carbon emissions. So they have really you know, been working with the University of Westminster and, um, and have chosen to monthly give their carbon donations to us because they see the benefits. It's not just about planting trees, it's planting trees in a purpose, which have all these other benefits. So yes, we're planting trees, which sequester carbon. We're preventing rainforest from being cut down, which sequesters more carbon. Um, we are you know, improving the water source from not having runoff from agricultural soil going into the waters. We're preventing the use of agrochemicals as well, which you know, improves the soil and the water. And we are improving, you know, livelihoods in the people that can grow more food. So for them, it kind of ticked all the boxes that they were interested in food growing and they were interested in carbon sequestration. So that's why they kind of chose Rainforest Saver. And, and so we have this partner 
And that's what we're looking to expand to more carbon partners that want to go through their scope three analysis and actually look to really start to offset their carbon. Yeah, that that is it's very um, encouraging because I, I see an awful lot of movement in terms of even voluntary carbon markets and companies trying to get on board and take account of their impact and to have this inside view of where that benefit is going and how to support projects that are beyond planting trees. I think the benefits of what you're doing regards to protection plus um, that the the new development of tree planting, sequestering carbon, supporting the small farmers, it, it, it goes so above and beyond just simply planting trees that this it leads to um, a very a very desirable project to support. And I think people can probably, if, if we just talked about, well, um, the benefits that come from supporting the crops that we depend on, like our favourites, our coffee and our chocolate, that's another reason for people to, to sort of put their hand up and offer support in this direction because it's, again, it's just another thing above and beyond simply planting trees. So... I think that it's going to be really interesting to, you know, how, you're well placed to know how to put the solutions um, into action. And the world is becoming well placed to start putting the finance in that direction. So hopefully, you know, it, it may be um, a little bit more time, but hopefully this is how the connection will be made to offer this mixed benefit for everybody involved. Um, so I'm going to you know, be very intrigued to see how that goes. And I think on top, what you've touched upon is the interest of the universities, because what could, um, what we could learn from these systems, we don't even know yet. And that could provide answers to problems that we, are, you know, very, even if we just think about losing uh, chocolate or having to, continually put these fungicides on the chocolate that is our health in actual fact isn't it that's if we're going to the shop we might not be concerned for the environment itself not everybody puts their mind on these issues but putting that food in our mouth and it's covered in fungicide that might be more concerning to people than anything so I think that we can't dismiss the fact that solutions come with connections and it's like a web and when we support a project such as this, where there is biodiversity that's being expanded upon, then those solutions keep on expanding, keep on growing. And it's, um, it's well and beyond carbon emissions at that point. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that this movement towards carbon offsetting, to start with, people just thought about it with flying. Oh, I'm just going to fly and it'll be like my guilt tax that I can fly anyway, and then I'll just offset my carbon, which is really not what this is about. You know, it goes so much deeper. It's like, yes, we have to really remove the carbon from the atmosphere. So flying is not going to remove it, even if you offset it, which is why the scope three is so important to us to really kind of look at embedded carbon, not just our direct use of carbon, but the supply chain. and 
you know, obviously we want a carbon tax at some point. So we need to be able to, you know, local apples that are not transported need to be able to be cheaper than apples that have been transported from New Zealand. But it's not like that. And, um, and so when we either will have like a voluntary carbon tax where we ourselves can calculate our own personal carbon footprints. And so we all contribute towards this. And obviously businesses which have huge carbon footprints, you know, start to put in some serious money into being able to actually, you know, find and work on these solutions that are there, they're just needing support. Yes. Yeah. And that's it. And it's, it's trying to connect those dots. That seems to be that there's no lack of solution. There's just the directing the money in the right way. And it's going to be interesting because it certainly is an expanding market. The carbon market, it's not something that's going to disappear. And I think what we have to ensure is that we're directing the information towards the positive projects, towards the projects that are taking on the full understanding. And it's like you say, it's not just a case of, well, I'm offsetting and therefore I can do it guilt-free. It's, yeah, it's making, um, avoiding the greenwashing and making an actual real impact. So everything that you're doing, it, it, it seems very busy, very exciting, but also um, there must be enormous challenges and frustrations along the way also, because it, it, it's kind of literally they're making decisions. Should we cut our forest down? And you're, you're sort of screaming, no, 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 wait, trying to express that there are alternative ways. Um, how can people support you at the moment? Is there a way that people can be involved or learn more about your work? So yeah, anybody wanting to find out more, I've written a blog about it on my website, which is my name, nicolapeel.com. Uh, so you can see about this initiative and there's some links to that. And anybody that has you know, any skills that would like to really help move this forward, because time is of the essence. And I can hear the chainsaws in my mind. I'm so aware of the forest as we speak this very second during this interview, how much forest has actually been cut down. We don't even want to think about it. You know, how many species have become extinct in this conversation? Because where they were cut down is the only area that they were found on the planet. So right now there is such an urgency and there's an urgency in all things related to the climate and ecological collapse. So we really need people to step it up and take more action in whatever way that is, to use your skills. We all have a part of the jigsaw and we can all move everything faster if we work together. So I really encourage people, if you have skills, if you have ideas, if you have money, if you have finance, then whatever it, can, it is that you can do, then say, contact me and, um, and I'd be great, be great to have a conversation. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure to learn all about this. And as you say, it's actually quite frightening. Um, it's very real. It's happening right now. Um, so I, I do hope that people have learned something um, from, from our time together. And I wish you all the very best with everything that you're doing. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for listening to this episode of We Are Carbon. 
Next time, we'll be hearing from Brennan Spelsey for a discussion that helps us to further unravel the world of carbon offsetting, carbon marketplaces and the tech side of things that joins it all together. I ask him to help us get our heads around the broader picture of all of this. You can keep up to date with everything from We Are Carbon by subscribing on the website or following along on Instagram. Search for wearecarbon.earth. And let's keep figuring this all out together.